When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What is more difficult? Mm-hmm. Reverse parking blindfold, mm-hmm. a handbrake on, mm-hmm. or teaching my dad how to use FaceTime? I think that's an obvious one, isn't it? It's yes. the second answer. I've just spent 45 oh. minutes to look at the top of his head. Oh, I think it's bless. his head. I mean, oh. I don't know. I mean, bless. I think it might be easier to teach an octopus to I do this. I think you could be right. You could yes. be right. Well, I get my dad's nostrils on FaceTime. You- that's <laughs> right up his nostrils. <laughs> Why is this so? Do you think this is going to happen to us? Definitely. There are warning signs, aren't there, Mm, already? Definitely. There will be. We're not very good at tech in the best of No. So imagine in 20 years when we're a bit deaf and, uh, you know, we've got hairy nostrils, it's going to be a disaster. But it'll all be advanced as well then, won't it? You'll Mm. be able to maybe hologram yourself into your children's front room. That is Terrible the price thought. they will pay for all the mean things they exactly. do to us right now. Exactly. Serve them right to get a naked hologram of me of a Sunday morning. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Trish Halpin. And I'm Lorraine Candy. And we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Trish and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Paula Briggs, a sexual and reproductive health expert who is also a menopause specialist. And we'll be asking her about some of the trials and tribulations we can suffer down below at this life stage. Down below, Trish, is that how is that how we're referring to it? Could we not say vulva and <laughs> vagina? You could do, but let's not go there quite so early in the show, shall we? You know what I did there, Lorraine, don't you? Yeah. I, I was a bit of a fun sponge, wasn't I, on your kind of no. chat? <laughs> well, it's quite apt because we're going to be discussing being fun sponges in jibber-jabber, as it's something that drives us a bit mad when our husbands and kids accuse us of sucking the fun out of things or being nags or, heaven forbid, boring. Yes, it always seems to be the mums, doesn't it? We are the ones that have to be sensible, at least some of the time, and we are the ones that have to think about everything. Um, Mm. I think it's called emotional labour. Don't get me started. I will uh, keep a lid on that until a bit later on. What else have we got coming up? Well, after our interview with Dr Briggs, it's How to Win at Midlife, in which we'll be tackling the tricky topic of teens and food. How do we drag them away from those pot noodles and get them to eat healthily? Should we tiptoe around our daughters for fear of giving them body image issues in later life? Well, we have some expert advice on these dilemmas and much more. we were talking at the beginning of the show about your OAP dad and technology. 80 years old, yes. Oh, bless him. Well, the other day I had organised a birthday Zoom for the twins. They turned 17 and with two... They what? They turned 17? 17. So I thought, well, obviously they can't see anybody. So we organised a Zoom with the grandparents and you can imagine what that was like. Uh, You know, four deaf, old, lovely, lovely people. But Zooms, I think, are difficult enough at the best of times. But when you kind of got groups of people all together and nobody's listening... And sorting it. Well, I did exactly. That's the thing. I managed to actually get them all on there after a bit of faffing about. But you know, would the kids pay attention? Would Neil pay attention? You know, he's kind of like prodding them, making them laugh, having conversations with the kids off screen. I'm like, come so on, you've got to concentrate. And I was like prodding the kids to like ask questions and answer. And of course, at the end of it, I get told that I'm this sort of being so serious and no fun and da, 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 all of that which kind of really annoyed me because I thought actually I'm trying to do a nice thing here and I'm looking out for the old people and I'm trying to be nice to you guys yeah I'm some boring old you know fun sponge basically really it's very hard. very annoying I mm. guess it comes under that uh, emotional labor description which I kind of 
become gendered that description but I know exactly what you mean because I had a similar thing it just makes me so cross because it puts me into particularly because I am not a fun sponge Trish Mm -hmm. I embrace the fun as heartily as I can but I remember when Henry was quite small he must have been this is my son he's 14 he must have been about three three and a half Mm -hmm. four and we were with a group of friends on the beach bank holiday August bank holiday packed beach in Cornwall lots of people lots of kids and the dads sent the kids just out of eyesight a little bit out of eyesight to play cricket and they said oh he was four that's it you can he can he can go and I said oh I think he's a bit young and they said oh no he'll love it don't be ridiculous of course let him go let him go against my judgment I let him go and obviously that was the last we saw of him for two oh, hours oh, no. um, <gasps> absolutely the worst day mm. one of my worst days parenting ever I think yeah. I mean the whole world just went dark he was wearing a stripy top and every kid is wearing a stripy top on the beach in the summer and I just I was so cross cross I'd ignored my instinct cross they'd mm. called me a fun sponge for not letting him go and it was only because a friend of ours had been walking up a cliff and she had spotted him mm. walking away and she was kind of coming back to tell us um, and we'd obviously all dispersed by the time she came and he'd walked all the way across the beach quite you know, about a 10-15 minute walk to the ice cream van because mm. <laughs> mm. he loved an ice cream van but actually it was just it really signified how annoying it is to be called a fun sponge and I know that that thenceforth I always say remember Henry in the ice cream van the day we nearly yeah. lost our son drowned in a rock pool etc but it is something that I think maybe Gen X men we're in this kind of mm. very gendered roles mm-hmm. and this is stereotypical of how we're supposed to be and it's reinforced with movies cinema soap operas it's reinforced with all the greeting cards you know mum is the sensible one it's reinforced on all the social media TikTok mm-hmm. is full of memes with go ask mum as in go ask the manager mm-hmm. it's just quite annoying isn't it I'm not it sure is. what you do about it my husband often buys secret crisps and secret sweets as well when I'm on a kind of go healthy binge right and then and then so he's kind of like the fun dad and you're the one banning the banning the food it's it's kind of annoying I've had that as well sort of on holidays where I've been known (laughs) to storm out of restaurants when you know because I'm trying to stop Neil ordering like the fourth round of cokes for the kids and you're just like I'm sitting here nagging and, and I hate that word it's a very contentious word isn't it nag because it's only ever associated with women and usually it's when we want something from a man when we're asking them to do something whether it's to help out around yeah. the house or change their behavior in some way you know we are the nag and I kind of worry that our children go up thinking that mums that older women are nags you know because yes, we are mums and we are having to be sensible sometimes and it's our job to remember birthdays mm to know what time it is during the day. It feels like it's kind of such a consistent message for this generation. And it really isn't fair in a way. I guess that's why it's it's a kind of small thing, but it's also Mm -hmm. a really big thing, isn't it? Because it makes us people we don't want to be. And we're just kind of looking out or conversely, are we not relaxed enough? Mm. Are we looking out for too much? Mm-hmm. Are we kind of sheepdogging everything when yeah. we could relax a bit? I am a bit of a health a health and safety monitor, and sometimes I kind of go, maybe I do go into overdrive. So how about this one? So my son came home the other day with this large bottle of, a like, big litre bottle of Coke. I said, where did you get that bottle from? Because we don't we don't really buy that. And he had, it had a post-it note on it, and it said, um, you can drink me. And he picked it up on the road. So this big bottle oh, of Coke. <laughs> I can see Neil what? doing that, you see. Well, yeah, he's like father, like son. But I was like, what on earth are you thinking? Like, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There are germs <laughs> everywhere. Novichok, Novichok. It could be spiked with Novichok. Not Novichok. <laughs> Don't worry. Obviously, I'd go a bit fun extreme in my, my, my fun sponge-ness. <laughs> but I was just literally like... And he went, no, look. And he opened the top and went, look, there's the hiss. It's obviously sealed. And I was like, well, I don't want that in the house. And of course, I ended up finding it in the fridge. We've got this very small fridge in the utility room that's a bit of an overflow fridge. He'd popped it in there on its side and it spilled out everywhere, all over the place. And I'm the fun sponge. I mean, I I guess what it's about is it's just inequality, isn't it, Trish? It's constant inequality in the home. Well, I'll tell you what, next week I'm going to be... I'm going to be the fun queen. I'm going to be the monitor of all, the instigator of all things mm. fun. I think we had, we had a, a great post on uh, on Facebook this week from one of our members called Melanie, who put up a picture of herself, which is basically her kids telling her she's a, sp- a fun sponge because they put, it was basically her in this chef's hat that her daughter had bought her 
for a birthday present. And the reason teenage her daughter, daughter had bought her, teenage daughter, I think, had bought it because she was fed up of finding bits of mum's hair in the food. I was like, so you're basically saying, you are a skivvy, you are my chef, but stop ruining my dinner, please. <laughs> Just be furious. <laughs> There'll be a revolution of the fun sponges yes, soon. Watch the, out the, for the it. The fun sponges are going to rise up. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's guest is menopause specialist Dr. Paula Briggs, who will be tackling the sexual health taboos that affect almost all peri- or postmenopausal women, the things we don't like talking about out loud. Paula, 57, is a sexual and reproductive health consultant for the NHS based at Liverpool Women's Hospital. A mum of four, she's been a menopause specialist since 1993 and has helped treat thousands of women, many of whom were suffering in silence. So welcome, Paula. Good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. Now, we're going to get right to the nitty gritty at the beginning of this conversation, because sexual health in midlife is one of those subjects that Gen X perhaps still have some difficulty talking about, particularly face to face. So tell us exactly what you do and which body parts this involves for women in midlife. I'm a consultant in sexual and reproductive health. So that covers the full range of medical gynecology, including menopause, and also contraception. Contraception is required until the age of 55, which lots of women are unaware of, and sexually transmitted infections. In my day-to-day job, I deliver a menopause service, either by telephone or face-to-face. I also work in a vulval clinic. And I'm undertaking research supported by the University of Liverpool to help diagnose urogenital atrophy, which is, I think, at the moment underdiagnosed and therefore undertreated. What is that? That is the effect of lack of oestrogen, usually post-menopause, but not always. It can happen to women who are breastfeeding, women who are using certain types of contraception like Depo-Provera. But usually post-menopause, urogenital tissue quality, depending on the individual, is sensitive to the reduction in oestrogen and also testosterone. That's a vagina what, you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. What kind yeah, so, of problems does that cause, Paula? Because obviously we, we probably immediately jump to maybe sort of problems, uh, you know, j- during intercourse. But are there other kind mm-hmm. of issues that it causes as well? Yeah, there are loads of issues. And I think mm. there are any on what am I actually talking about? So it's not just the vagina, it's the vulva, which is the outside part. Also the bladder and the urethra, these tissues all come from the same source embryologically. And when it comes to symptoms, Trish, I think common things which would be useful if women were aware of the potential link with menopause are vaginal itching, burning, dryness and pain during sex and those are reasonably simple things to cover in in just an opening question have you had any of the following but I think it doesn't always get asked in a consultation. And you've been then on the menopause front line for almost 30 years you've been doing it since 1993 so are women getting better about talking to their GPs about their sexual health would someone come and say to you I have 
problems with my vagina, my vulva, etc. or not. Has it got better? <laughs> no, it hasn't got better. Oh, it's a shame, I, isn't it? <laughs> it? It's a massive hurdle. It takes a lot to build up the confidence to see someone about the potential problem. And during the consultation, they probably are gauging whether this person is the right person to have the conversation with. And, it, you know, they may decide at the end, then, yes, I'm just going to have to get this off my chest. And if they don't then get the right response, it's mm. it's fairly devastating because yeah. it's such a difficult thing to deal with you know to discuss the two-part problem it's not just the woman's problem it's also the healthcare provider and it could be a doctor or a nurse who may not feel able to discuss the problem partly because they don't know what treatments are potentially available when we chatted before you said to me that 50 to 80 percent of women in midlife will have a varying degree of vaginal atrophy so this is a huge problem that affects and not the majority of, of yeah. midlife women. Yeah. And it's just still a sort of terrible secret we all keep. Yeah, absolutely. I think the number of women that get away without a problem are small. It's always better to be aware that this might happen. And I, I think we also talked about the fact that it doesn't always happen during the perimenopause, the menopause transition, or immediately postmenopause. It may occur several years later by which time that potential association has been lost. So the patient, the woman herself may not think, my goodness, I've got vaginal dryness. It must be because I'm lacking estrogen. She just thinks maybe this is just what happens when you get older. And chances are her mother never talked about it to her. Even amongst women, I think it's probably not a common topic of conversation mm. I think we don't talk about it do we Trish no we don't I mean we we talk about menopause generally and yeah. some of the the more you know there's, there's so many symptoms as, as of course you know we, but we would be I think we'd be quite shy and embarrassed yeah. to talk about that kind of level of, of intimacy so it's it's a hard thing I think for women to discuss you've talked about the symptoms of the sort of itching burning all of these kind of things yeah. so what can be done about it so in an ideal world the woman will present to somebody who might consider this as a potential diagnosis. It's important that a woman is examined because it could be something else. You know, it could be worst case scenario. It could be, a, you know, cancer of the vagina. And that's what's really important is that we don't just make an assumption that it's urogenital atrophy because it's a woman of a certain age. And the kind of things that we would be looking for would be changes in skin color, changes in elasticity. Sometimes the opening to the vagina just becomes sort of less robust. So I kind of have a theory that the menopause will affect us all in different ways. Some women get short-term symptoms like hot flushes and night sweats. Other women will be affected by cardiovascular disease or osteoporosis. And then as, as the years go by, the chances of getting urogenital atrophy become progressively more likely. How do you treat that? That can be treated in a variety of different ways. We have lots of options now. So it's a fantastic question. It's not just vaginal moisturizers and lubricants. Sounds painful. Any treatment for this, is it painful? It, it's potentially very painful. So anything that's cooling, soothing, lubricating logically would help. And then if we think about the underlying cause being lack of estrogen. Yeah then replacing estrogen locally. So not in the same way as we would deliver HRT and some women on HRT get this condition, but giving either estradiol or estriol in a variety of different ways. That might be a cream or a pellet or a gel or a waxy pessary or a ring. You know, there's lots and lots of different options with regards to replacing the deficient hormone. And then if those don't work, we can move on to some of the newer treatment options, which include DHEA, that's a precursor hormone, and that gets converted in the vaginal mucosa to both estrogen and testosterone. And we know that testosterone is important, but there are no standalone preparations. So that's a fantastic new, relatively new product. And then ospemaphine is an oral medication that has a preferential effect on the vaginal mucosa. And I think, Lorraine, you, or, or it might have been you, Trish, made the point that this is a painful condition. Yeah. And if you have a pain, do you want to constantly be doing something to that area? So putting a pessary in every day might not be suitable for all women. And then finally, there is now the option of laser therapy. 
so far pretty much in the private sector, but NICE are currently reviewing laser therapy as a, a novel approach to managing women with this condition. And it's particularly important for women with cancer who may not be able to or may not want to use hormonal therapy because of anxiety about that inducing a recurrence of their cancer. If one of our listeners thinks, gosh, this is me, this is this is what's happening to me, and they go to their GP, can we expect our GPs to have this level of knowledge or should they be referring us on to a specialist? I think that's really variable. I think what's important, and with many vulval conditions, not just urogenital atrophy, lichen sclerosis as well, the patient can become very informed to understand what would be a kind of red flag symptoms. If the woman doesn't feel that she's getting the right treatment from her GP, then she needs to ask to be referred. I think the problem at the moment is on the NHS, it's very difficult to access clinics. But what we do in the Volvo clinic where I work um, is one of my colleagues will go through all of the referrals and pull out things that she would deem to be more high risk. Mm -hmm. You must see women in pretty desperate kind of tearful. Yeah. And so on Monday, I saw a patient who was very happy for me to talk about her case. Um, She had a hysterectomy when she was relatively young and by relatively young I mean in her 40s and had real struggles getting the right HRT and the right treatment for urogenital atrophy and she traveled three hours to see me because I think she belongs to a chat group and somebody else had been talking about the treatment that they'd had and you know she she just broke down and it wasn't because I was offering her outstanding treatment I was just listening to what she had to say and telling her there were different treatments available and she had not had that response basically she had been told it's vaginal estrogen or or there isn't anything else and actually she hadn't really had an adequate trial of vaginal estrogen it hadn't been used for long enough. Do people present with different midlife problems that lead you to kind of gradually and forensically uncover what they're really trying to tell you because we we often hear that from women in midlife that they go in and say I think I've got depression but actually it is and it's lack of estrogen testosterone so it's does that happen with your speciality it does happen but if we're thinking you know focusing on this condition I would always ask and I don't you know Mm. as I said before I think it's a fairly simple question something like when did you last have sex And that may be all they need to kind of start the conversation about what's going on. And sometimes they'll present with, you know, I'm just not interested in sex. Well, you wouldn't be if it was going to be extremely uncomfortable, would you? So, and there could be two things going on. You know, it might be that they're, is a problem with systemic levels of testosterone. We know that female ovaries produce lots of testosterone and they do it less efficiently from from about the age of 20 onwards. But as you get older, you have less and that will affect your sex drive, your drive generally, your kind of brain fog and aching or other problems that are associated with lack of testosterone. So yeah, there's there's often more than one thing. We do have some listeners in their like late 30s before coming into the perimenopause phase because our aim with this podcast is to get women informed before. Yeah. Is there anything they can be doing about this particular issue or be aware of? Or is it just a case of just be aware of the symptoms and get to a doctor early to talk about them? There isn't really anything mm. lifestyle with this. So I think it's important that women are provided with the right information about everything to do with our bodies. Not, you know, and, and as you say, you know, younger women, it might not be that they're menopausal, but actually contraception could be very important. Mm-hmm. And that can have a beneficial or a detrimental effect on vaginal health. It's just not talked about, mm-hmm. is it? It's not, it's not socially acceptable to go around talking about your vagina. I had a really interesting Zoom call with a pharmaceutical rep yesterday who said she was a Muslim woman. woman. She'd never mentioned the word vagina. And she must have then mentioned it about 20 or 30 times. So she'd really cracked that nut. <laughs> Good. <laughs> You know, if this was men, if this was men and there was something wrong with them, we would be no, we would be hearing all about it. I think women very much put up with what they get and, and they just get on with it. And there's so much that we could do to make things better by providing the right information so that women think when it happens, oh, uh, you know, a little bit of vaginal itching, it's possibly because I'm either on a certain type of contraception or I'm breastfeeding or, oh my God, maybe it's the menopause and, and there are lots of treatments. I actually think when you're talking about depression, it is depressing when you don't know what's going on. You don't know who to help you. You don't know what treatment options are available. And you think this might be it. Who, who knows? This might be it. No 
sex ever again and you're only in your early 40s Mm. or 50s. You've said that you can still get this if you're taking HRT, but the whole kind of controversy and attitude around HRT and also around women having to put up with a certain level of pain because it's kind Mm. of expected. Do you still encounter that within the profession? There's still a sort of reluctance within GPs to talk about their own perimenopause and menopausal symptoms, their own need to take HRT, isn't there? Mm -hmm. I think all doctors find it very difficult. I think, you know, we talked about the BMA survey, which showed that 90% of doctors really struggle with where to go with menopausal symptoms. And instead of finding the right person, they they work part time rather than full time. And actually, in the current climate, we need all the doctors we can get. So if we can make it better for our healthcare professionals, then I think that will take us a long way. And I also think if we can inform women and inform GPs about um, urogenital atrophy, that has a huge potential for long-term savings in women who are maybe on antidepressants that they don't need, or they may be on long-term antibiotics, they may be having bladder washouts, they might be taking drugs for overactive bladder that they don't need. I'm not saying all of them by any means, but I'm sure there's lots of crossover between specialties. We were talking about sex, obviously, in midlife, and it can become an issue around menopause, but there's also the, the other side around people going into new relationships and I know a few years ago, it was stated that there was a rise in sexually transmitted infections in people in midlife and beyond. Is that something you deal with at your clinic as well? Because that must add another layer of complication. Yeah, yeah, we, well, very much so, I think. And and the future is to work much more closely with genitourinary medicine and sexual health. I'm obviously at at the moment now in secondary care gynaecology, but these things are all joined up. Mm -hmm. Sexually transmitted infection rates are increasing across the board, but most resources being channeled into the under 25s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we have to recognize actually that many women will stay in a marriage because they have children. When the children go, actually, they no longer need to, to, to stay within that relationship and they will often develop new relationships, exposure to new potential STIs, particularly HPV. Mm-hmm. because we virtually all you know I suppose at some point will have been exposed to HPV but not necessarily all of the strains so these, these that sort of information is important and HIV do people think I might get HIV if I'm in this heterosexual relationship well possibly not I think basically any woman's at risk if she's in a new sexual mm. relationship yeah it doesn't matter what age you are you you do need to be using protection you need to be yeah. using condoms with new sexual partners and do women talk about their sexual relations with you is that something that they're finding easier to talk about since you started sort of in the 90s? Yes, and I think that comes down to how comfortable the person asking the question is. So, you know, if you're reasonably matter-of-fact, you know, make the point that this is something that all patients are asked about, maybe numbers of sexual partners in the last six months, the reasons for that to make sure that we don't miss a diagnosis. You know, one of my issues is around that idea that you no longer need contraception in your 40s in the abortion service that I work in now in the previous one we had lots and lots of women in their 40s presenting with an unplanned pregnancy and it's it's worse for them because they just don't expect it. Do you think GPs are becoming more knowledgeable about the menopause? I mean we get I mean it's every day we get mm. <laughs> posts yeah. on our Facebook group of women saying my well we had a woman say I'm, my GP says he won't pump me full of hormones so I can't get HRT. Do you think GPs are getting better? I don't know if they're getting better yet, but I think there are lots of plans in place, collaboration with the pharmaceutical industry, not about their products, but about working together to improve. Narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So personally, I think there is quite a lot of training out there for GPs. It's a very, very hard job. You cannot be good at everything. Um, And I think support for GPs is really important so I would like to think within the area that I work in um, that I'd be reasonably well known to the GPs that they would feel comfortable to email or to text and say is this the right thing to do Um, and we've got lots of projects on the go kind of tear off slips for women so that it's easier to engage in a conversation you know you take your piece of paper and that's the that's the opener to the conversation and some kind of online resources, very simple, punchy information for GPs and mentorship. And then there are specialist qualifications, but they're probably too high level for the vast majority of GPs who are not delivering a specialist service. So, you know, I work in a tertiary referral centre. We see lots of women with cancer or who have significant risks. For example, they might have had blood clots. 
Um, and that's very appropriate. But I would like to think that the women who have no specific personal history or family history could be provided with HRT by their GP following the NICE guidelines. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been sort of reading about there possibly being an attempt to kind of rebrand HRT as MHT, menopause hormone treatment, yeah. which we assume is that as a result of kind of the, all the negative connotations and connections between HRT and breast cancer. It is. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I have a sort of personal opinion on that, that. And we actually did a, recently did a patient participation group for the menopause booklet that I wrote a couple of years ago that's been made electronic. But patients don't want to change the name. They like the name. Mm-hmm. So they, um, the International Menopause Society have rebranded HRT as menopausal hormone therapy, MHT, to get away from the influence of the Women's Health Initiative study in 2002, which basically yeah. did cause about 15 years yes, of detriment. Yeah. And it's the same, though, with urogenital atrophy. I've just done a, I'm doing a systematic review from my research, and I've just put in 10 different terms into a search engine, including things like urogenital atrophy, vaginal atrophy, senile vaginitis, vulvovaginitis. And that's all not helping with the diagnosis. And now they've decided to call it genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Well, you know, that's a massive, great big mouthful and it sounds mm. really scary and it's really not yeah, It's very off-putting, isn't it, for women? Very mm. off-putting. feel like something terminal. If you, <laughs> exactly. It's confusing. So I, I think all of that changing the name of stuff is unhelpful and we should go Mm -hmm. with what patients feel comfortable with Mm -hmm. um urogenital atrophy is the british menopause society term i think it says everything we need to know it's a change in tissue quality in the bladder vagina vulva and usually that's due to lack of estrogen Mm-hmm. So if I'm someone with any of those symptoms going to my doctor and I'm just stood outside the door thinking, I just, I can't talk about this, it's too embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> How do I motivate myself when I go in to say, this is on fire or I get, these yeah. are my symptoms or, you know, it's just can't have sex anymore. How do I get, how do I get over that as a woman? The patient facing arm of the British Menopause Society have a really good resource and it includes terminology for. Where would you health. find that? On the British Menopause Society website. Right. So Women's Health Concern will be accessible Give through you that website. The language. Yeah, and then recently we contributed to an embarrassing problem website for Carger, who are a well-known publisher. They're also really interested to pick up on the podcast today because actually there's stuff about STIs, about contraception, and it's not um, age-related in any way, so patients could get lots of useful information. That's, sorry, that's Carger. Carger, K-A-R-G-E-R. Okay, we'll have a look at that. You mentioned a menopause booklet that you've written, Paula, mm-hmm. that's now online where where can that be found it's it's in the process of being updated and it will go online via theramex which is a pharmaceutical company's home site but i think it may be available elsewhere that'll be free of charge and one of the reasons for having the patient involvement was it's quite a high level booklet with lots of information and i wondered if we should be cutting that back but actually the patients were keen to retain the information and just to pick mm-hmm. up on the bits that were relevant to them so there's quite a lot of pictures boxes to record their own symptoms which i think is useful and again if you're looking at an easy way of engaging with your gp for example to take your booklet and say look this is what i've had in the last month and this is what i think i've got that yeah. i think would help when do you think that will be available within the next few weeks i think oh perfect okay so we'll we'll get that information and you, you say it's on the theramex home website yeah. what is theramex then Th- theramex they are a they're a pharmaceutical company that make various different HRT products. Great. Okay, that's really helpful. They, they make a, uh, the DHEA product that I mentioned as a sort of second line treatment right. for urogenital atrophy. Is there anything we can get just over the counter if we have sort of more minor symptoms or would you always recommend seeing a doctor? Um, I think if it's a really sort of early case and um, it may just be dryness that's the problem, you can get some amazing lubricants over the counter or online. There are is talk of vaginal estrogen becoming available over the counter oh, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, it's not at the moment but you know that's a potential development and I think the only woman that would really need to avoid any hormonal treatments are women who are using specific um, treatment for breast cancer and aromatase inhibitor because that's really designed to get rid of all estrogen for those patients 
often the atrophy is very severe because they have no estrogen pretty much and I think lubricants and moisturizers will often not be sufficient and those are the patients that in in the future I would like to think that we could offer laser therapy to I visited a clinic in in Italy loads of patients coming in with variety of different cancers having um, laser therapy uh, with, with very good outcomes what does it actually do the laser therapy so what it does is it causes micro abrasions so t- tiny little bits of damage but there's lots of good tissue left behind and that stimulates fibroblasts which lie dormant as fibrocytes and those are the cells which make connective tissue and interestingly sexual activity will do something quite similar so it causes well, so we should keep having sex as much as yeah, we can there is there is a theory use it or lose it yeah. which, um, not all women like to hear um, and also we think that semen contains something which is helpful for vaginal mucosa i mean the superficial cells in the vagina shed every four hours and they contain what? Mm, lots of glass. I don't know anything about my vagina, Trish. Yeah. I've realised I've got to 52 and it's a complete mystery oh to goodness. me. Never too late. Um, so those superficial cells contain lots of glycogen that promotes a, um, lactic acid, lactobacilli, which are healthy vaginal bacteria. And that keeps all the other bacteria, which are normal, and they're normally there at babe. But if those aren't kept under control, then things like E. coli can overgrow and that increases the risk of urinary tract infection. Oh, right. Goodness. So you've been treating women in various states of distress, you know, and embarrassed and worried about talking about it they must be hugely relieved when they see you have you got any cases that are really uplifting that would kind of inspire I've got an amazing our listeners to go in and (laughs) an amazing patient who um I met and she's a big character and she'd been to at least six different doctors and she'd been told a variety of different things that she might have had wrong with her um none of which were actually true I mean she's had allegedly thrush bacterial vaginosis um urinary disorders and she eventually pitched up with me in an NHS clinic but we um, provided her with laser treatment in the private sector because that's what we've got at the moment and she required four treatments it's three to five treatments four to six weeks apart and she's just emailed me recently saying basically we were grieving for our sex life and she and her husband are Mm. in their early 50s and they hadn't been able to have sex for some time Mm. Um, and how much they appreciate what was done because although it was a financial burden for them um, it was a big outlay that is a really important part of your relationship and of course it depends on the couple if both partners don't want sex that's different isn't it if one wants it and the other one doesn't that's also potentially a a different situation but in this particular situation um this particular relationship sex was a very important thing for them and I see that a lot And, and I think if you you ask the question sensitively, lots of women will actually say, well, yes, actually, it is really important and we really enjoy it and it's something we want to be able to continue to be able to do. And, you know, there's no reason why that... Well, you've saved a marriage. That's a lovely thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I don't think he would have left her, but it, it saved the marriage to, yeah. to what it had always been. Yeah, yeah. you don't have to put up with... That's the thing, isn't it, Trish? We don't have to put no. up with all these yeah. <laughs> symptoms yeah. all. Yeah. And I guess you can ask for a second opinion. If you go to your doctor and they say, we're going to give you antibiotics, antidepressants, you can say, can I have a second opinion? And then you get asked to be referred, don't you, somewhere else? Yeah, and I, I think that can be quite a challenge and it depends yeah. how feisty a character you are, but, but you are, well, every patient is entitled to the right opinion. I was also going to say that sometimes if sex has been impossible and there is that kind of head in the sand approach, so you mightn't think about dealing with it for several years. And then if it does come above the parapet, and it's usually because women think their partner is going to leave them, and we've seen that lots of times, um, then even the right treatment with the right end result doesn't always mean that sex is possible because it's become like such a great elephant in the room. Yeah. So sometimes we have to have the support of specialist physiotherapists who, you know, every every team I've worked in, the specialist physiotherapists have been amazing to help relax the pelvic floor. Mm. and also psychosexual counselling so all that's available then psychosexual counselling yeah yeah, within the unit I work in we have we have all of that 
Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's really good news. That is. Um, I've just got a bit of a nosy question. What kind of physiotherapist do to your pelvis then to relax it? The thing about this... We've spent pelvis... years tightening the bloody thing. I know, exactly. Pelvic floors have taken such a bashing over the years, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and actually if tissue quality is poor, then there's an increase in the risk of prolapse. But mm. if you've got constant pain, that's just a gigantic muscle. And it's almost a kind of... A, subliminal thing where you get you know, get tight as a, as a defense mechanism and then it, mm. it's a sort of learned response to potential sexual activity so it's kind of I suppose partly it's recognizing that and and, and understanding what you have to do to be able to relax that muscle if, mm. if possible and, and then and it often is it, it's not just a single approach that helps ultimately yeah. it's, it's a team approach yeah oh, oh you've been so helpful really good. Paula. That's yeah. abs- it's absolutely fascinating it's such a shame that there aren't there isn't a Paula in every surgery. Yes, around exactly. Britain. That's kind of what we need, isn't it? We need an expert because yeah. you know we are fifty-two percent of the population. So I kind of think this is not that difficult a concept, and it's not a dangerous. There's not there's not many treatments. Not we, expensive either, is it? Not expensive. It's not. There's not many contraindications to the treatment. So I've been working a long time, and if I spent the last ten years before I retire helping make this, you know, raise awareness about this problem. I would be really happy and I think that that could make such a big difference to quality of life of lots and lots of women well I think you'll definitely have made an impact on our listeners today and given them so much helpful information and we will put links on our Facebook group to all the resources that Paula you've mentioned today so thank you so much for joining us it's been lovely to meet you and thank you for all the work you've been doing over the the last few decades for women it's amazing So food has cropped up quite a bit in the show today, hasn't it, Trish? And I don't know about you, but one thing that has tipped me over the edge during these long days at home with my three teenagers is their diabolical eating habits. Mm. I never know whether to say anything about these unhealthy or disordered eating habits or whether to just leave it alone. I mean, it's a minefield, food and teens, isn't it? Oh, God, it really is. And a lot of our listeners have mentioned that they're worrying about it too. I mean, I just constantly every day, I feel like I've stopped a bit, but I probably have spent a lot of my years parenting worrying about food. So I think it's great that you've spoken to two experts, I believe, today, haven't you, who've shared some really good advice with us? Yes. So for How to Win at Midlife, this section of the show, I have chatted with Anita Clare, from the Positive Parenting Project. She is a coach and author of the work Parent Switch, How to Parent Smarter, Not Harder. She's an expert in child development and runs a peer-to-peer website, Whatever Together, where parents of teens can talk through their issues anonymously. And I also talked to Sam Perkins, who is a nutritionist of the website Happy Eater, which is very helpful for parents. This is what they advised. Brace yourself, Trish. Don't panic. That's the number one (laughs) piece of advice. Now, Anita is really clear on this. And she says the good news is that all the evidence points to teenagers returning to healthy eating habits, probably those you kind of laid down before they were 11, as soon as they leave their adolescent years. She says all your messages about healthy food will definitely have sunk in. So keep calm and keep the negative chat to yourself because it's going to be okay in the end. And as Sam, nutritionist, says, it's almost impossible to change eating habits during the teen years but she is seeing quite a few more teens now who are developing eating disorders during lockdown so please try and avoid making food this potential battle zone with your teens don't criticize or critique their eating no matter how tempting that is because what feels like a small comment to you will feel absolutely huge to them hugely negative so try and reframe the conversation you could reframe it sideways perhaps by talking about getting active instead of eating and food and how they could do that what they could do to move basically so maybe push the chat in that direction without demanding anything from them or maybe talking generally about healthy lifestyles and anita's second piece of advice is that teens need to reject parental values around anything and everything so if you think about it they do don't they They just don't want to do what we do and even with logical subjects like food and obviously they will have had education around this at schools we do it in the home but they need to feel in control over what they eat so we just have to let them get on with it because it's about forming their identity having the power to make their own choices and obviously this is more kind of relevant in lockdown when every other way of doing that for them has been taken away from them because they have very little control at the moment and I think if you try to stop them eating anything they choose to eat it's going to 
end up in a power battle, which is not going to really help. So the positive things to do really in that situation, I try and encourage them to cook with you, shop with you, and then set limits yourself on the amount of unhealthy food you bring in the house. Um, but try and do it in a collaborative way. So you kind of get their buy-in and say, right, crisps is Thursday is a crisps day, Saturday is a cake day or whatever. You get them to agree to it and then they have these treats to look forward to. So your language should be about what you worry about, not what they are doing. So you can say, I worry that six packets of quavers in a row is harmful (laughs) to you. It's my problem, but what do you think? So I think shifting the language in that way that it's being your problem, not theirs is going to help as well. Yes, I think that's a very useful piece of advice. Her other piece of advice um, is to prioritise your relationship with them. So focus on that. So your connection with them is a priority over their relationship with what you see as unhealthy food. If you lose the connection, they're not going to listen to anything you say. So try and keep your focus on staying close to them and not interfering with their food choices. This is the long game and it requires quite a lot of patience, I think. There are some practical things that you can do um, in collaborating with your team. You could perhaps set a kitchen curfew for safety reasons I mean we say no cooking after midnight because we're in bed and we don't want the house to catch fire Mm. so they happily agreed to that Um, you can keep your connections with them by doing little things like maybe wandering in with some fruit Um, I cut up apples and leave them all lying around the house or pop in during their school break times Um, she says you can make some milkshakes you can leave nuts and seeds about things that they'll nibble on absent-mindedly or you can ask them to cook with you to prepare Sunday lunch perhaps Um, you should be trying to get them to eat with you at least once a week um also you should ask them how they want to prepare food and when they want to do it so that they're collaborating with you but it's all in this very non-judgmental non-critical way and you just need to try and avoid them getting into a nocturnal Mm. eating routine so the curfew should help with that Mm. and i think anita's overwhelming message really isn't it is to keep all language around food as positive as possible and, and not demonize it and this is the same for body image so never refer to food in association with what your child your team looks like or how it will affect them so it's better to talk in general terms about healthy food but not in reference to them so we do have to kind of grin and bear it i'm afraid and remember that all the normal empowering happy moments which boost their self-esteem have been taken away from them in lockdown yeah their sports their friendships their kind of exciting things to look forward to so the last thing they need is you worrying out loud about what they eat and how it affects their bodies and and this is a good one it's scarlet o'hara isn't it gone with the rim yes gone with the wind and remember tomorrow is another day so If you feel you have not handled this issue well so far, guilty guilty me too, (laughs) totally, you can always start again tomorrow. Yeah, that is the best piece of advice. Sam, the nutritionist, also says that they do need regular snacks. So maybe instead of viewing it as meals, view it as snacks, because when their blood sugar drops, that has adverse effects on their mood, as we know. So if you can keep them snacked up to the eyeballs, as we say here, that will keep their blood sugar levels consistent. Mm-hmm. And the smoothies, you know, you can make a smoothie out of Weetabix and fruit and milk. Oh, I did you know, not Trish. know that. Mm, did not know about that. That's a yeah. good one. Mm-hmm. Um, leaving fruit bowls in their room, bowls of cereal beside their laptops, just constantly snacking. Things that they should have, if you can ask them, is a vitamin D supplement, 10 mm-hmm. milligram vitamin D supplement. Uh, maybe B12 supplements as well, particularly if they're veggie or vegans. And iron supplements for girls because of the blood loss during their periods and maybe they're not eating meat. So it's a little bit about doing those little things and really, really not saying anything at all. Mm. I know that's hard, but as we said, it's the long game. If you are worried, though, that your child, your teenager has drastically changed her eating habits, then you should or his eating habits, you should absolutely talk to your GP for advice. We're here, Trish. Nostalgia noodling. Are you ready? Well, I'm ready, but I'm going to make a little prediction. I I bet yours is going to be about food (laughs) because we've talked a lot about food today. Is it? It is. Of course. Well, you are telepathic as well. Mm. We do know this about Mm. you, don't Mm. we? Like a cat, like a little mm. feline, my mind. Shall I go then? Yes, please do. Because basically, my nostalgia noodle is things that make you want to eat chocolate, which is basically <laughs> quite everything. most of everything mm. in my life. So, <laughs> I have been watching Real Marigold Hotel. Oh, I was watching that when Paul Nicholas was on. Oh, yes. Which took me down the things that make you eat chocolate route because I was then remembering 
Whisper Bars from yes. 1981. Do you remember yes. them? And then Paul Nicholas was in an advert with Jan Francis because they were in Just Good Just Friends, Friends, weren't they? Yes, I love that show. Yes, and they basically launched the Whisper Bar, mm. which is one of my favourites. What is it better than an arrow? Is it not sort of the same as an arrow? No, well, an arrow's <laughs> kind in it. I know, you, but you used to be able to just get normal, plain arrows, but then I think they turned them into a whisp, didn't they? Well, I don't know. I'll have to consult my uh, history of chocolate history in the library. History of chocolate in the encyclopedia. Mm, yes. yes. Is yours food? Mine's not food. Mine is about tape recorders. Do you remember those little sort of, they were like a rectangular box and they had little yes. sort of almost keys that you had to press these buttons. These are the things that are in those time capsuels that Blue <laughs> yes, Peter buried exactly. in 1904. Well, do you remember like Sunday night was very important because it was the top 40 countdown. Yeah. It might have even been the top 20 back way back in the day. And the trick was to try and record the songs. You'd put your little tape recorder next oh, to the radio. Yeah. <laughs> And you'd have to get the press... I think Half the, of Kid Grail's coconuts. Exactly. The press and record next to each other uh, <laughs> at the same time. And I always... There was one song, and I don't know why this sticks in my head, but it, I always got it every week. And it was... Uh, do you remember David's soul? Don't give up on this baby. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know why. I think I must have been going through a sort of... Cardigan phase. Hutch, cardigan's Hutch post Yeah. That's he's your cut. He's he would have been your type then, I imagine. Yeah, but David I'm imagining Soul, David Soul. not Starsky, a bit hairy for me. Starsky. What did you miss? You got the first three bars. Did I you? do. Yeah, I think so. I think I always managed to, and I wanted the whole song. But um, well, you're not very technical now. <laughs> I can't imagine you would have been pressing two then. buttons at the same time. And then oh, you would have got goodness. very angry as well. I can I imagine as well. Very upset. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Postcards from Midlife. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed it, tell your friends and all the midlife women you know. And remember to subscribe on your podcast provider and rate and review us too, please. And if you could download instead of listening on the Wi-Fi, that would be super helpful for us. And don't forget to join us on the Facebook group. Also on Instagram or email, you can contact us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.